we open up God's Word together. We are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. You want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you to follow along this morning, I'd encourage you to do that. Young and old, God's Word is for you. And so you'll find our our passage this morning on page 814. So if you're, you're new to Christianity or new to this Bible, page 814 in that black book in front of you is where you'll find the passage we'll be studying this morning. We'll begin in verse 18 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter's just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray what we sang this morning. Lord, we ask you as we open up your word to speak to us. That you would show us how to respond to what Christ has done, clearly done. Would you give us understanding of your word and how it all fits together? Would you give us hearts that are made new and minds that are made new so that we can see, so that we can understand, and so that we can worship you? That's this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you, have you ever tried to watch a movie that was part of a trilogy or part of, of maybe a series of movies, but you didn't see the movies that led up to it? You, if you watch movies like this, you can understand what's going on, right? But you know you're missing some of the jokes. You know that you're missing the, the, the answer to the question, why is that guy acting that way? Why, why is that guy not like this other guy in the movie? You'll miss why that one scene in the movie seemed really climactic 
and everybody in the theater stood up and clapped, and you're just sitting there going, that just seemed kind of expected, right? That, that seemed ordinary. The, the story, the movie, it stands alone in that you can follow the plot, you can follow the action, but you can always tell that there's more going on. You're missing something. Well, if, if, if you have been following along with us in Matthew's gospel as, of, as we've been in this book for the last year, you'll remember that the prequel to Matthew's gospel is the entire Old Testament. And especially, really particularly, the book of Isaiah. Sometimes we've seen that Matthew quotes Isaiah directly. Sometimes he just alludes to Isaiah or alludes to ideas that we find in, in the book of Isaiah. Well, this morning, Sarah read for us from Isaiah 35. Isaiah, before we get to that, just as a quick lesson, if you're new, this guy was a prophet who wrote to God's people prior to Jesus' coming. So prior to Jesus' coming, prior to the people of, of, uh, of Israel and Judah being cast out of the land and exiled, Isaiah was there writing. He wrote before the exile. The kings of both countries, Israel and Judah, were not trusting God. They were, they were making alliances with what these kings perceived to be stronger countries. What they were really doing was making alliances with their enemies. Not only that, so not only do you have the leadership going astray, but the people themselves were worshiping idols. And, and the leaders in the country were abusing the poor. They were neglecting the fatherless. They were neglecting the widow. And there was this just a general sense of injustice. A general sense of disobedience throughout Israel. So God sends Isaiah, this prophet, to warn the people of his coming judgment. He tells God's people over and over and over again in this book that if they don't repent, they're going to be exiled from the land. There's going to be horrible judgment on them. But over and over again, throughout Isaiah, throughout the 66 chapters of this book, Isaiah says... But God is going to restore you. So you you get warning, you get judgment, and you get restoration. God is going to restore you. He's going to send the son of David, the good and righteous king, and he's going to rule over you rightly. And he's going to send the suffering servant, and that man's going to take your sins upon himself. And he's going to send the conquering, redeeming, savior king who will bring judgment, but also true peace, not just to you, but to the nations. That's what Isaiah tells us about. And as we're reading Matthew together, what we're finding revealed for us and uncovered for us is that all three of those promised figures, they're bound up in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the promised son of David. Jesus is the one who will suffer for our sins. Jesus is the one who conquers and comes in judgment and brings with him a new heavens and a new earth, new creation. Well, in the, in the 35th chapter of Isaiah, the one we read this morning, that the prophet is talking about when God's people are being restored. So you read Isaiah 35, think restoration. And what's happening there is that the kingdom of God, or as, as Matthew has been prone to call it in, in his gospel, the kingdom of heaven is beginning to break in. Beginning to break into earth. The promised kingdom is beginning to be established on earth. And, and with the coming kingdom, 
All that is wrong with the world is going to be undone. And the beginning of that is, to, is, is going to happen with these signs. Isaiah says, at that time you'll see these signs. Well, what are they? In Isaiah 35, 4, God is going to save those who are fearful and discouraged. In, in, in 35, verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened. In verse 6, the lame will, ma- will walk and the mute will sing for joy. In verse 8, what he calls the way of holiness is established. And there won't be uncleanness there. In verse 9, there will not be lions or ravenous beasts there. In other words, the people on the way will be protected. In verse 10, the people respond to this restoration, this coming kingdom, with gladness and joy and sorrows will be no more, which means death will be no more. That is the promise that God gave his people 750 years prior to what we're reading this morning in Matthew. Matthew, in wanting to show us that Jesus is that promised king, he just wants to show us how Jesus fulfills these promises. That's all we're reading. Fulfillment of promise. And he couldn't be more explicit. Jesus doesn't metaphorically heal people. He actually does exactly the things that Isaiah said he would do. And we see in our text today that just like God promised he would do, the Messiah makes the unclean woman clean and tells her to have courage because salvation has come. He brings a dead girl to life because death will be no more in the coming kingdom. He gives sight to the blind because that's just what Messiah does. He gives a voice to the mute because the mute are to sing with joy in the coming kingdom. So what's Matthew saying for us in Matthew 9 in the way that he writes this? He's saying the promised king, the son of David is here. His name is Jesus and his kingdom is coming. So what we're going to do with our text this morning is just briefly look at each of these miracles in Matthew. But then we're going to spend some time exploring the who cares question. Why does this matter? Why, did, why does what Jesus did then matter now? What's the significance of these miracles of Jesus the Messiah, the promised King, if, as we know he has, he goes on to die on the cross, he's buried, he's resurrected, and he ascends into heaven? What do we do with that? How do we respond to Jesus now that he has ascended. To answer that, we'll be looking at the book of Hebrews, a letter written after the ascension of Jesus to answer that question, because just like Matthew, Hebrews also quotes Isaiah 35. So here's the trajectory, all right, for this morning. This is the arc of redemptive history. Isaiah promised that the Messiah would come And there would be these accompanying signs of his coming. Matthew points to Jesus and says, look, Jesus did those things that Isaiah promised. Jesus must be the Messiah. And then the author of Hebrews looks back at the life and the the death and the resurrection of Jesus and says, because Jesus, the Messiah, came and inaugurated his kingdom, this is how we should respond. 
So the setting of our text this morning is that Jesus, if you remember back a few weeks ago, he's at Matthew's house. He's eating and drinking with these forgiven tax collectors and sinners. The disciples of John the Baptist come and ask that question about fasting. Do you remember that? Jesus tells them he's the bridegroom, the one from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 62, who was promised to bring about the new covenant and this restoration and the salvation that's to come. And so they're feasting and they're drinking and they're celebrating because he's with them. And then just while he's saying these things, while Jesus is teaching these people, when he's answering this question about fasting, look at what happens in verse 18. A ruler comes in, and kneels before him, that is, he worships him. And he says, my daughter's died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So, so right in the middle of his teaching, Jesus is interrupted. And he's asked to bring this little girl back to life. Well, what's going to happen now? Well, as it usually happens in Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches something and then he proves it to be true. He shows the truth of his teaching through his actions. So so Jesus is going to show us that he's the one who's going to bring this restoration. So we get to verse 19. Jesus and his disciples get up from the table that they're feasting at. And they start to follow this man to his house. But they don't make it there, do they? They don't don't make it all the way to the house. In verse 20, a woman who has this, this bleeding ailment. For as long as this ruler's daughter has been alive comes up to Jesus. And we know that little tidbit, this little factoid, because in Mark's gospel, of, in Mark, the, 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 the gospel writer's account of this story, he tells us that this little girl was 12 when she died. And this woman who comes to Jesus, she's been slowly dying, bleeding out for 12 years. Blood, according to the Jewish understanding, is the, is the life force of a person. Or even an animal. That's why, that's why Jews were supposed to not eat animals that still had blood in them. Leviticus teaches us that when, when you kill an animal, you're supposed to bleed it out and then bury the blood. That's, that's the life of the flesh. So, so with that understanding, this woman's life has been draining from her. And Leviticus teaches That makes her unclean. Leviticus 15 says she's so unclean, in fact, that if anything she sits on, if she sits on anything, that thing becomes unclean. If anyone touches her clothes, the clothes become unclean. Anybody who touches her, anyone who touched by her becomes unclean. And this has been her life for 12 years. Is devastatingly alone. She's an outcast. She can't be near anyone. She can't eat with anyone. She can't be with anyone. She's as lonely and broken as you can imagine loneliness and brokenness. I think what Matthew's doing for us here in the way that he's putting this story together, true story, the way he's written it is he's He's without a doubt showing us a picture of the curse of death, isn't he? 
With these, with these two women, one dead and the other slowly dying, Matthew's giving us a snapshot of what the world looks like following the sin of Adam. This is the state of God's people. Sick, suffering, dying, separated from God. That's the condition of the old kingdom. That's the condition of the world when Jesus comes in. And it's here that Jesus shows up because He's the promised one. And because He's the promised one, that curse is beginning to unravel with every word that He speaks and every person that He touches. The the bleeding woman has heard about this Jesus, and so she goes to Him. I just want to pause here and say, if if you feel like her, I know some of you do, you feel hopeless and helpless and alone, Do what this woman does. Go to Jesus. And I don't mean just think vague thoughts. Don't just repeat the name Jesus in your mind. I mean go to him. This Jesus. The one in Matthew. The one in the Bible. The Messiah Jesus. The one that Matthew's telling us about. This Jesus. The one who's a friend of sinners. The one who offers you forgiveness for your sin. He offers you healing for your brokenness. He offers you wholeness in Him. Seek Him, pray to Him, follow Him. This woman is so broken, she's not sure she can actually talk to Jesus. Look at how she approaches Him. In verse 21, Matthew tells us, she had thought to herself, if I only touch His garment, I'll be made well. Think, think again about her condition. Right? Everybody in town knows of her condition. Everybody knows that she's unclean. It, it, it could be, and I think it is, that she's so used to being an outcast. She's so used to being away from people and kind of kept away from people that, that she's afraid of Jesus here. She's afraid that he will rebuke her if she touches him or if she asks for him to touch her to heal her she knows this about him she knows he's some kind of powerful right you you can tell that she has this this faith that something about him is really powerful but she doesn't know that he's compassionate she's only heard about him she doesn't know him so what does she do she touches his garment and her whole plan just goes to pot Because you can't just touch a little bit of Jesus at the edge. There's no such thing as just enough of Jesus. It's either all of him or none of him. There's no such thing as just enough Jesus to make life a little bit better. An encounter with Jesus, the Messiah, means you are completely transformed. So she's not just touching some some priest's robes. This is Jesus, the one who knows hearts. Jesus knows exactly what happened when she touches him. Look at verse 22. He turns, so presumably she was behind him, and she's, he's walking, she sneaks up behind him, and he senses this touch somehow. Mark says he feels the power drain out of him. He turns and looks at her, and he speaks directly to her. And what does he say? He says the same thing that he told the paralytic man 
earlier in the chapter. Do you remember that? Take heart, my son. This time he says, take heart, daughter. Or as Isaiah would say it, about this coming Messiah, have courage, fear not. Jesus is doing two things when he responds to her this way. One, he's fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah. This is the message of hope that comes with Messiah. Jesus is announcing this message of hope, but secondly, he's actually comforting her. This isn't just a vague prophecy fulfillment. He truly loves her, has compassion for her, and so he comforts her. He's saying to this woman, you don't have to be afraid of me. I came to make you whole. I'm here to save you. He genuinely wants to comfort her, and so he does. He tells her that it is her faith in him that's made her whole. And, and, and when, you, when you see that, it's her faith in him. Not her faith in healing, but her faith in him. It's not her faith that he's a miracle worker, but faith in him. The revealed Jesus, the bringer of the kingdom, the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, and he makes her whole again. He makes her clean. Well, if we're tracking with Isaiah 35, because she's clean now, because Jesus has cleansed her, she's now welcomed onto the way of holiness, isn't she? Because there won't be unclean there. Well, the story continues because Jesus continues on his way to the ruler's house. Remember, we've got a little girl to save. There's this, when he gets to the house, there's a whole bunch of commotion going on when he arrives. The flute players are already there. And if you're wondering why flute players are there, this is, this is tradition. Most people would have hired professional mourners to weep and wail and play sad music for about a week. Wealthy people like this synagogue ruler would have hired lots of mourners. So lots of flutes are there. Imagine it sounds like a lot of third graders practicing the recorder together. <laughs> So there's, there's quite a crowd and there's a lot of noise and a lot of wailing noises bringing attention to the loss of this little girl. And Jesus arrives and in verse 24, he does what I think the whole family has been wanting to happen. He says, go away. Leave. Get all the recorders out of here. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And that's what death is to the one who is the resurrection and life, isn't it? Death is sleep. To Jesus, the one who will come and defeat death in all finality, he's giving us glimpses of that second coming here. When all death is undone, she's just sleeping. The resurrection is coming. Well, the crowd laughs at him when he says this, don't they? He ignores them, he goes inside, he takes the girl by the hand, and she arose. And that's it. That's all Matthew has to say about that. And look at what happens in verse 26. The report of what Jesus has done goes throughout all the district. Jesus raises the dead to life. The curse of death is going to be undone by him. The king is here. The kingdom is coming. Well, in the next section, beginning in verse 27, what do we see happening? Jesus leaves that house. He goes on his way. And about that time, two blind men are following Jesus, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. The blind men know who Jesus is. 
He's the son of David. He's the promised king. In Isaiah 43, when Isaiah prophesies about the coming of the Redeemer, he says in verse 8, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. That's these guys. They're, they're blind, but they see that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what they mean when they call him son of David. They're not misunderstanding who his dad is. And they're not just saying he comes from the line of David. He's from the tribe of Judah. They're saying much, much more than that. To call Jesus the son of David is to say he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. The one who belongs on the throne of David. For blind guys, they have incredible sight. They see and say what no one else has said yet, but what Matthew has been pointing us to. And like Isaiah 35, 5 says about this coming righteous son, what does Jesus do? He heals them. Their seeing blind eyes are opened for the first time. Look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus touches their eyes, says, according to your faith, be it done to you, and their eyes are opened. Now, before, before we go on to the next miracle, I just want to point something out here that you need to know about blind people who are given sight in the Gospels. Giving sight to the blind happens in the Gospels more than any other healing miracle. Or at least it's recorded by the Gospel writers more than any other miracle. If there's anything that the Gospel writers want us to see about Jesus' healing ministry, it's that Jesus was giving sight to the blind. Sight, sight to the blind, having, having the eyes of the blind opened, is one of those bright, flashing, neon signs that says, the kingdom is coming. It's evidence of the presence of the Son of God. We, we read in our call to worship from Psalm 146, the Lord gives sight to the blind. Did you pick up on that? In Isaiah 29, and in Isaiah 35, and in Isaiah 42, especially in 42, the one who brings sight to the blind is the one who is bringing the kingdom. The new covenant. He's the one who has the anointing of God's spirit. He's God's chosen king. This is a sure promise. This is a sure sign. And it's something that only happens in the Gospels. Did you know that? Most of the other healings that Jesus performs in the Gospels, they're repeated by the disciples. They heal the lame. They cast out demons. There's even an instance where Peter prays and a dead woman is restored to life. There's that instance where Paul's preaching too long and the guy falls out of the window and Paul raises him to life after he dies. But no disciple is ever reported to bring sight to the blind. It's a, it's a miracle in the Bible that is reserved for the Christ. Because what? You know why? It's because sight to the blind is a very, very specific prophecy-fulfilling sign that the kingdom of heaven has broken into the world. That's why Matthew wants to show us so clearly this happened, this really happened. Blind people received their sight. Later on in Matthew's gospel, John's disciples 
are going to come from John who's in jail and they're going to ask Jesus, are you the promised one that was to come? And what's Jesus going to tell them? He's going to say, the blind are given sight. That's the sign that he is the promised one. That's what's happening here. Well, in response to this healing, what do these men do? Look at verse 31. Jesus warns them, don't tell anybody what happened. We'll talk about that later, not today. But they do exactly what the people who saw the little girl brought to life did. They spread his fame throughout all the district. Well, in the next miracle, beginning in verse 32, a mute man is brought to Jesus. Matthew tells us that the reason for his inability to speak is demonic oppression. Jesus casts out the demon, and the mute man is given a voice. Again, just like Isaiah promised. Isaiah 35.6, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And again, just like with the girl, and just like with the blind men, the people are in awe. Look at what they say. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never. And I don't think they're just talking about the mute guy who can talk now. This, this never before has this happened. This is the culmination of everything that's happened over the past few days. The dead are brought to life. The paralytics are healed. The lame are healed. Blind are given sight. The mute are given a voice. All of these things happening together, all on the same day, all in the fulfillment of the promises of the coming king. Something totally new is happening right before their eyes. They won't say it until we get to chapter 12, but the crowds, they're beginning to understand who Jesus is. They're beginning to see, like the blind men saw, this could be the son of David. This could be the promised Messiah. Pharisees are a different story. They don't see things that way, do they? They see all of this, and they respond negatively, not with awe, not with praise, not with spreading of fame, but with disbelief. These guys, they've had enough of this guy now. They've seen enough. Now that he's casting out demons in front of him, something that I don't think they could do, they're convinced he's not a prophet. He's not the Messiah. What do they say? He's a worker of Satan himself. Look at how they respond. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We're going to get to that accusation later because they're going to say this again. And Jesus is going to respond to it to their faces. And if you want to read ahead and see how Jesus responds to that accusation, read chapter 12. We'll get there in a few weeks. For now, though, here's what we need to see. Each of these miracles that we saw this morning in Matthew 9, in some way or another, is pointing to the promised Messiah. All of these things were promised in Isaiah. And they happened And each of these is a sign that the king is here. The restoration has begun. And so we have a choice. We can respond in one of two ways. We can respond to this with belief. Or we can respond to this with unbelief. Either what Jesus did was truly a sign that he was the Messiah. Or all of this is a scam. 
So here's the question then. If you're in church here this morning, I'm going to take for granted, and I could be wrong in this, but there's a high likelihood that you hear that choice and you say, I'm going to respond with belief. Right? I believe that Jesus is the promised king and he's bringing his kingdom. But what does belief look like for us? What does that mean? What does it mean that, there, that Jesus is the Messiah? Does it, does it mean that there aren't blind people and mute people and sick people anymore? Does it mean kids don't die anymore? Does it mean people don't suffer anymore? It doesn't mean that, does it? That would be just to, to deny, deny the reality around you. So belief that Jesus is the Messiah can't mean that all of these things have gone away yet. Here, another option is this. Do, do, do Jesus' miracles mean that we, his people, should be able to do the things he was doing? After all, as we'll see in the rest of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10, Jesus' disciples are sent out to do these things. Everything but heal blind people. And in the book of Acts, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the apostles are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. We have the Holy Spirit if we're trusting in Christ. Should we be raising people from the dead? Is that what faith looks like? Is that true belief? Should we expect to be making paralyzed people walk? Should, should Christians be touching blind people and giving them sight? Are there Christians who are so empowered with the Holy Spirit that if someone with a hemorrhage touches their clothing, they'll stop bleeding? Well, in a word, no. That is not what we should expect. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Jesus is not showing us here how to heal people. He's not teaching us that if we have enough faith that we'll be healed. He's not teaching that. He's teaching us to have faith in Him. That He's the Messiah, the bringer of the kingdom of heaven. That's the point of this. If you miss that point, you miss Jesus. And if you miss Jesus, you miss the gospel. And if you miss the gospel... You miss salvation. Listen, salvation is not being physically healed. Salvation is being dead in your sins, but being risen up by Jesus and given new life in his kingdom. To be saved is to be brought in, to be given by new birth and faith in Christ, belonging to that kingdom that Jesus has brought. One day, one day when he returns, we will receive true and ultimate physical healing. That's the final act. That's the final act of salvation that's being brought by Jesus. That's when we'll get a resurrection body, a glorified body. And there are not blind, glorified bodies, or sick, or bleeding glorified resurrection bodies they're all going to be perfect but that day isn't here yet and it's not our responsibility to bring it because we're not Jesus while we wait 
on Jesus's return, the marker of belonging to that kingdom is not perfect health. It's not physical healing. It's holiness. So the sign that someone belongs to Jesus is not that they're pursuing healing gifts. The sign that someone belongs to Jesus is holiness. If you want to find a Christian, if you want to find a true follower of Christ, don't look for healings. Look for holiness. Look for righteousness. Look for the signs of the new birth. Read again with me what Isaiah said was coming. Read again what Isaiah said this bringer of sight to the blind was bringing. Look at Isaiah 35, 8 with me. When these signs of the restoration come, look what he says. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Now think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' inaugural sermon as the new king is ushered in. Back in Matthew 7.13, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. There are many who enter there, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Remember that? The way of true righteousness that he was teaching us about? And isn't it interesting that Christians in the book of Acts are described as those who are of the way. The the, the way is the way of holiness provided by Jesus Christ. The way is so identified with Christ that in John's gospel he says, I am the way. By Jesus' death on the cross, he's made us righteous. By being born again into Christ, we were set on the path of salvation. And on that way, we are to be marked by the pursuit of holiness. In Hebrews 12, I told you we'd get to Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, we have this, this group of Christians, this church, and they're struggling in their faith. They're being tempted to depart from the way. They're they're being tempted by false teachers to find a way to righteousness apart from Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he gives us. And the author, over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, he says, persevere. Keep going in Christ. Stay on the way. In in Hebrews 12, 12, as a way of encouraging these discouraged believers, he actually quotes Isaiah 35. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Almost word for word. By quoting Isaiah, what what the the author of Hebrews is doing, he's reminding these, these people, this church, of what Jesus accomplished for them in the book of Matthew. He's reminding them of what Jesus has brought. The kingdom has broken in. And the way of holiness, the way of salvation has been cleared for you. And now here's the author of Hebrews echoing Isaiah saying that because that way has been made for us by Jesus, walk, or rather what he says is run with endurance on that way. And so what does that look like for us? Does it mean heal people? 
No. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. This is what it looks like to respond to the inbreaking of the kingdom. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He goes on to say, avoid sexual immorality. He goes on to say, avoid being impulsive. He goes on to say, live in gratefulness because you've received the kingdom. Read to the end of Hebrews 12 today. He says, you've received the kingdom. That's the good news of what Christ was announcing when he was healing people. The kingdom is here. And Christian, you've received it. So what do we do? We strive for holiness. We strive for peace with everyone. Because this kingdom can't be shaken. Christians are not to be known as miracle workers. They're to be known as holy and redeemed people. That's how people will see in us the reality of Christ's work. Because redemption is what Christ has already accomplished. The end of death and disease, that comes at His return. And that's His responsibility, not ours. That's end time stuff. That's new heavens and new earth stuff. We long for that. We pray for that. It's good and right to look forward to that. That's why when you, when you see someone die too young, or when you hear of someone with a sickness that isn't going away, you feel like things aren't right. Because you're longing for when Christ will undo all of that. But that day's not here yet. Listen, the beginning of holiness, the beginning of right worship, that day is here because that day came with the cross. Jesus didn't die to give you power over disease. He died to give you power over sin. That by identifying with his death, you would die to the world and live your life in him. A life on the way to holiness. Striving for holiness. Those of you who have been born again to new life in Christ, you have been brought to life in a way far more miraculous, in a way that's far greater than that ruler's daughter. Your eyes have been opened to the love of God in a way that those blind men haven't seen yet. You who were once unable to sing praises to God, unable to worship Him because of the sin in your heart, you were mute, but your mouth has been opened to speak and to sing the wonders of Jesus Christ. That's what He's done. So how do we respond? He's our merciful Lord and Savior. We are to respond with praise and live in obedience to Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God. We praise You this morning. Lord, give us joy in our salvation. Lord, help us to not be discontented with the miracle of new life that you've given us. 
Help us, Lord, not to think that there's something more that Jesus Christ should have done for us when he died for us. Lord, turn our hearts to you. God, thank you for salvation. In Christ's name, amen.